I'd have time travel fantasies about going back to the 60s and think about, you know, in that way of, oh, wouldn't it be cool to be at that show? Wouldn't it be great to be at that gig? And then it starts getting bogged down in other issues where I just think, like, what if I had to foil an assassination and I couldn't remember the date? Or... And then I just start to think about nostalgia itself. Is, is dreaming about the past, is that a problem? Is it actually a failure to deal with the present day? And are you in retreat from modern life? Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Edgar Wright's new drama, Last Night in Soho. The film follows an aspiring fashion designer who encounters an ambitious singer when she mysteriously travels to the 1960s, but their facade of glamour soon cracks into something much darker. In addition to Last Night in Soho, Mr. Wright's directorial credits include the feature films Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, and Shaun of the Dead, as well as episodes of the television series Spaced, Sir Bernard Stately Homes, and Asylum. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Wright spoke with fellow director Phil Lord about filming Last Night in Soho. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello, congratulations, my wonderful friend, Edgar. Thank you. Nice to see you all here. It's the first time I've been back in this theater for forever. It's nice to see you. Thanks for no, coming. We're in a theater together again. This is my first time. Uh, this movie is a unicorn. It's a, a, a major motion picture that is adapted from nothing. <laughs> um, tell me about the genesis of this project. Well, I've been thinking about this story for a long time. I sort of had this story for like a, for a decade. I really wanted to do something in this genre and something that was darker than my other movies. And as, aside from that, aside from the kind of the the sort of the, the tone of it and the sort of the genre that it's that it's in, I guess the other big inspirations are sort of one's thematic and one's like physical, like. You know, I, I sort of obsessed with the, the 60s first through my parents' record collection. So I was born in 1974. So, and I think there's something funny about having nostalgia for a decade that you never lived in. And there's always that feeling of like, it's like the decade that you just missed. And um, my parents had, uh, not dissimilar to Rita Tushingham in the start of the movie, had like a box of records, which they didn't listen to anymore. And they were all 60s albums. And it seemed like they stopped buying albums when my older brother was born. <laughs> there were no 70s albums. And so, and they never listened to them. I never remember them listening to them or even using the record player. So when I was frequently left alone in the house, I would just listen to these records over and over and over again. So that's where the sort of obsession with the decades sort of started. And then moving to London, like uh, Soho, the area, which if you don't know, is like a square mile right in the center, sort of in between theatre land and the shopping district, Oxford Street, is um, also the centre of the film and TV industry and like a big, uh, you know, like nightlife area, probably the nightlife area, probably the only part of London that's truly 24-7. And then also, you know, uh, back in the 60s and sort of continuing sort of to the present day, like, you know, the heart of the criminal underworld and the sex industry as well. 
That's, I mean, it's not, it's, when I first moved to London in the early 90s, there was a lot more prevalent, and it's sort of been gentrified out, but not quite. <laughs> so it's always, always still... Just enough. Yeah. I mean, but it's still something where is the kind of place where there's a definite energy change after midnight, where it feels like the sort of the, the ghosts of old Soho start to rear up at the witching hour. And so it's definitely kind of a very compelling and sort of sometimes disturbing place, you know, which has been an inspiration to artists and writers for hundreds of years. And, and also because the buildings are so old, you know, I can't help thinking about the past and what walls have seen. And then, and then just obviously the 60s, the decade looms so large over London and over, over Soho because there was that period where it was the epicenter of cool and like, you know, and, it, and, and that has never really gone away. It's like we never quite kind of recaptured that in the same way. So a lot of those things would really start to kind of um, obsess me. And, and then I started to kind of think, why am I, I'd have time travel fantasies about going back to the 60s and think about, you know, in that way of, oh, wouldn't it be cool to be at that show? Wouldn't it be great to be at that gig? And then you start, the more you start to think about it, then, and then it starts getting bogged down in other issues where I just think like, oh, what if I went back and I didn't have the right money? Or what if I had to foil an assassination and I couldn't remember the date? Or so just this idea of, of just, and then I just start to think about nostalgia itself is, is, is nostalgia and dreaming about the past and dreaming about the idea of the good old days in inverted commas. Is that a problem? Is it actually a failure to deal with the present day? And are you in retreat from modern life? So all these things started to weigh on my mind as I took like a million late night walks in Soho. <laughs> you, uh, you took me on one of those once. And I remember you pointing out all of these places where seedy things had gone down and where wonderful things had happened. And it, and it reminded me just uh, that feeling of moving to a new city and the sense that you have of wonder mixed with danger, which is what I love about your movie, is that I've, I'm like, <laughs> I'm anticipating, I know it's going to take a turn, but it starts out with such um, an incredible sequence where you dive into the past and you and thunderball, and I'm just loving it. You did such an incredible job of making, um, you know, selling the positive side of that at first. You want to talk a little bit about that sequence, which is one of the standouts in the movie. Yeah, I mean, the idea was, uh, I wanted it to be that like modern London is kind of got like a muted palette and sort of London, which can be when you first move there, like very cold and unfriendly. And, you know, I'm not an 18 year old girl from Cornwall, but I've definitely had that experience of coming to London. And, and so did Christy Wilson Cairns, who co-wrote it with me. So the idea is that then, you know, that modern London is, is sort of, um, quite forbidding and unfriendly. And then when she gets to go back to the past in her dreams, like the kind of like, that's where the color comes in. So we kind of like, we, you know, then the idea was to make the 60 sequences look like they were shot in Technicolor or Eastman color, that they're kind of eye poppingly vivid. And sort of the opposite of the idea of the past being in black and white. It's like, let's make the past incredibly vivid. And I was inspired a lot by 60s movies that were shot in Technicolor, like Peeping Tom or, William Wyler's The Collector, you know, or Basil Did and Sapphire, you know, films that are like sort of, like look richer than life. They look bigger than life for the time just because of the use of color. And then there's things going on in that sequence as well. I don't know whether you heard it in the Dolby Atmos, but like the Dolby Atmos doesn't kick in until the first 60s dream. So we sort of just, just decided to only deploy the surrounds 
when like she goes back to the 60s. And so there's a lot of things going on in that kind of first scene. I mean, that, what, that shot when she walks across the street, the other sort of key thing is that we shot everything on location. We shot Soho for Soho, both the modern day and the 60s stuff. And anybody who's maybe been to that area knows that that's like an ambitious location. Like London, central London cannot quite be tamed. <laughs> you know, so there was an enormous amount of planning that went into that and, um, and doing that shot where that shot with Café de Paris, we shot on the Haymarket, just around the corner from the real one. And, um, you know, that's a, one of the busiest streets in London. So we had 10.30 till 2.30 a.m. to shoot it. And, and the AD said, it was like we had three of the four lanes. The fourth one we had to keep open for modern buses. <laughs> so we're doing a steady cam shot that's like a 360 with period extras and period cars. And we had to rehearse it. We rehearsed it on an airstrip because there was no way of rehearsing it on the real location. The first time we could do a take on a rehearsal on location was 10.30 when we had the location ourselves. So that was kind of really ambitious. And there are other scenes in the movie, like the second dream when Matt Smith and Annie Taylor-Joy are driving right up the middle of Soho and, you know, turn a corner and park on a, you know, go from Frith Street to Greek Street. And we redressed all of the streets as the 60s. You know, and it's amazing doing those shots because... You know, you're just having to keep... You can close parts of roads for certain times, but you can't do anything to stop the public. So you just have to appeal to people's better nature with, like, an army of PAs and location assistants just politely saying, can you just give us 60 seconds to do the shot? It's amazing how (laughs) many people will just agree to that. Well, uh, there was something like... uh, Well, there's two things. I think there's a sort of a war of attrition. Is like, one way to keep the modern world out is just like flood that block with period extras and cars. <laughs> so kind of like modern people can't get in. Make them feel self-conscious that they're dressed <laughs> too contemporary. Yes. So and they go home and they change. Yeah. It was, but, but the amazing thing with those scenes to me is like, I'm, I'm really proud of those sequences and I can't quite believe we pulled them off. And there's, there's one scene when Matt and Anya come out of the club and they're sort of dancing and twirling in the street and having a little romantic moment. And it's really on Greek Street, all dressed like the 60s. But obviously out of the corner of every frame, the modern world is like right there. And like sometimes it's like people are getting thrown out of clubs and having fights with bouncers. And the actors, God bless them, just kind of keep plowing through, even as like sort of like, you know. There was something else that we did in that scene is that I did one like kind of like gorilla shot because I wanted to sort of catch Soho as it really was. So when we were shooting the stuff with Annie Taylor-Joy and Matt on the streets, it was the period stuff. And Anya wasn't Anya then, but like Matt was kind of, Doctor Who and Prince Philip. So there's a lot of people going, Matt Smith. <laughs> so whilst there we were shooting that and we had a lot of kind of Lukey Lou's watching us shoot, around the corner we had uh, a steady cam hidden in a rickshaw. They have those kind of party rickshaws in London. And we had one of those with a steady cam. And we were just shooting shots of the, the modern girls walking down the main strip on their first night out. So that shot when they're going out for a drink oh, great. was like shot on a hidden camera like at the same time. Right. <laughs> because, like, you know, everybody else is watching the period bit, and we think this is exactly the time to just kind of go up and down, you know, and, and just kind of record it. It felt authentic to bad choices made in Soho after 2 a.m. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the choices get worse the later it gets. Oh, yeah, nothing. I go home at 1.30. Nothing good happens after 2 a.m. That's a personal code that I, I have. Um, this movie is filled. Nothing happens by chance in an Edgar Wright movie. Um, you plan these things meticulously. And 
the, the amount of practical effects and mirror gags in this movie is astounding. Do you want to talk about walking those great actors down the stairs and how you pulled that off? Well, I think in that first sequence, I mean, throughout the movie, we sort of do every single mirror trick in the book. And uh, there are some sort of, you know, kind of sophisticated ones. And, and, and a lot of them are just both less than meets the eye and still kind of more complicated than it seems like. So essentially, a lot of them are kind of done for real, or we try to do as much of them in camera as possible. Because first and foremost, like, by having unbroken takes, it just kind of helps. Because the sort of the, the film is supposed to be immersive and you're going on a journey with Eloise, the more that you can kind of play these things out in these unbroken takes, the better it is, because you're, you're essentially experiencing the, the, these dreams you know, through her eyes. But say that first kind of shot when Thomason comes down the stairs into the lobby and you first see Annie Taylor-Joy, what you're seeing is like Thomason comes down the stairs and walks into the lobby and there's a mirror and there's a maitre d' and uh, he's played by Oliver Phelps. And then when the maitre d' takes her coat off and walks in front of the camera, the mirror slides back at the same time, revealing the double set where Anya Taylor-Joy is standing with James Phelps, his identical twin. And then, and then they do the mirror choreography. So the girls are like... And so if you hear the raw sound, you can hear our amazing choreographer, Jen White, going, two, four, you know, like five, six, seven, eight, and one. But basically they do all of that stuff kind of for real. So there's no... And there's no glass there. Um, they actually, when they tap the glass, they're touching each other's fingers. And then what the wizards in the digital, like double negative the visual, digital effects guys, they do some clever stuff to kind of fool your eye. So like there's no glass there, but they put on digitally like the bevel around right. and like little things like when they touch fingers where there's no glass, they put like a little fingerprint and stuff. So there's lots of little things going on to sort of just fool the eye. But essentially a lot of those things are kind of happening for real. And, um, you know, like uh, the, the, the dance sequence when they're dancing uh, and switching... Um, it's basically all one shot with no cuts. And there's one part where we did a, like a second pass um, where there's one particularly kind of slick one. But then after that, there's like, I think like there's like six Texas switches in a row, which is just, it's just choreography and like the, and the actresses. So if you watch the, the, the aerial shot of the, the scene, you'd see like, you know, Matt Smith dancing and like Anya and Thomason like ducking out of the way, ducking down, coming back in when they need to come back in. I mean, the really key thing there is like, obviously a great choreographer, the actors pulling off what the dancers have rehearsed, but the key, also just an amazing camera operator. And, and the key to it is like we were talking is like, we just do a lot of rehearsal. So I think that sequence alone, that shot, we, we rehearsed it with dancers, then we rehearsed it with the actors. But the key thing is like, get the camera operator in the rehearsal. Because he's the person who's going to... He's one of the dancers. He's one of the dancers. And, like, and he has to do like a bigger circumference than them. So it's always that kind of thing on a, you know, a, a low-budget film or if you're doing a music video or something or a TV show and you, know, you ask for something like that and the line producer says, do you really need the camera break in the rehearsal? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, we do. Otherwise, we everything, film this. everything's going to go to shit. <laughs> like, um, but that's, that's, the, that's the thing. Is that we, Chris Baines, who was the Steadicam operator, is like we just like, included him as much as we could like, because all of those complicated shots, the lobby shot, the dance, you know, he had to be part of it because, or even her walking across the street because especially if you then trying to do it on the days, you don't want to be figuring that part out of where the camera needs to be. 
So it, it was it was it was sort of thrilling to do, and also those shots are so great to do with a crew because you're sort of involving every single member of the crew. Right. And the more that you can do in camera, like it's always that thing you judge it by, like if people are crowding around the monitors, and if people are crowding around the monitor because everybody sort of can see the shot and knows what how it works, and they get excited if we pull it off. And I think the more you abstract that and go more down a green screen route and just say, oh, you know, the digital effects guys will figure it out. Right. Like it's kind of less, it's less involving for the crew. I like doing those kind of sequences because everybody gets involved. Yeah, if you were trying to pull that off with green screen, nobody can see what it's going to be. It's all just, you know, now you're just capturing elements and that's no fun. I think also it's toughest for the actors. Like so Thomas and Mackenzie, who's the star of this movie, is 18 years old when we made the movie, which I think is amazing that she does that performance as an 18-year-old. She's but an old soul, I gotta say. <laughs> she's an amazing actress. It's incredible. Um, but, you know, but that was the thing, is like to do mo- as most of it in camera as possible because it would be better for her. So all of the scenes when her and Anya are like each own reflection, like the later basement bar scene, like Thomason is sitting next to Anya on set. And there we kind of have half mirrors where there's a mirror behind where the, the Johns are on the right, they have a mirror, but there's not a mirror behind Thomason. And then that's kind of sort of the clever sort of stuff. The, the incredible thing about that choice to, is that they're, you know, the movie is their relationship. And so you get to watch these two people respond to each other in real time. And Yeah, I mean, they're in all their scenes together and it's not until the end of the movie that they have lines together. They only have like sort of actual dialogue together in the final scene. So... But, but you feel that they have a connection because they're sort of like wedded, you know, they're kind of joined at the hip. And I think it was really good for them because all of their scenes, they're sort of doing, it's like they're almost doing trust exercises. Like the first thing that they had to do, I think the first scene that they did was that kind of mirror choreography scene where they just obviously intimately get to sort of copy each other and, and, and figure out exactly how to make the choreography work and one copy of the other, and it's sort of amazing. I mean, you know. Yeah, and I would imagine you feel really exposed as an actor. Like you have somebody like shadowing you and following your every move and watching you and staring at you while you do it. I just think it would have been, if we'd have done more separation of doing it in a green screen or having Thomas in separate from the others, I think it just would have been awful for her. I think she would have really, you know, there were some sort of sequences where we did have to separate her. Like the scene on the when she's walking down the steps, that one is a motion control shot because it's got slatted mirrors and there was no way of having a double set. So it was a motion control shot. When you see Scylla Black saying that's like a motion control shot. But the tricky thing is, is that Anya has to do the choreography. And then when Thomason has to do the choreography, she has to look at a different eyeline. But otherwise you'd be seeing the back of her head. So she has to do exactly what Anya's doing, but she has to look at where she has to look at herself in the mirror. So there were tricky things there where she kind of had to have different She's in the same scenes, but she had to have, had to have different eye lines. So it's that kind of stuff that you, you, can, you can feel when you're doing those setups that at first the crew are standing around looking at what you're doing, thinking, I don't know what's going on. And then after a t- couple of takes, saying, oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah, it's madness. I mean, that, that's what I really appreciate about the movie. It, I often think that our job as filmmakers is to be really unreasonable. And not make things convenient. <laughs> and it seems like a very inconvenient movie to make, but then you pull off these incredible hat tricks that, that give me a sense of wonder in the movie. I and think, dread. 
<laughs> I think the thing, the key thing I think you've got to do is if you're doing these kind of effects in the movie is, is, is to sort of, it, it's to not kind of get in the way of the actors. It's just that the number one thing is making them feel like they can do a performance in the middle of it or whether there's like lighting effects going on or, 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 or just creating an environment where I, I can look out for that stuff, but they don't have to worry about it so much. So, I mean, you know, Thomason particularly, because she's the one who's shadowing a lot of the time, she sort of had the trickiest job and then she's giving this amazing performance on top of it and she's 18 <laughs> like it's kind of an extraordinary <laughs> i know it's incredible um tell me about you know what it you know collaborating with christy on on the screenplay this feels like um i was telling you earlier it reminds me of of um the madness you you go through when you write something and you get obsessed with it, and you kind of can't separate your real life from the thing that you're imagining. And what is it like to share that with another person, especially something that you have been like cooking up for a decade? Well, I think I I, I don't know whether I there was maybe part of me that knew eventually I would write the screenplay with somebody else. I, I pitched the idea like ten years ago, and you know, the first thing that I did because I was about to go off and do another movie is I thought well, this is not something I want to enter into lightly because like it's a genre that I haven't tackled. It's darker than my other movies, and, and some of the subject matter is, is really serious. And in a sense, there's that element where me, I, like Eloise, had a perception of the decade and things that you hear as like wicked whispers and sort of secondhand news that I felt like the thing to do would to be, was to research it. So the first thing that I did was we hired this amazing researcher, Lucy Pardy, who whilst I was off making another film, basically like re- researched every aspect of the, of the film. And, you know, I had this kind of phone book sized research kind of um, document, which was amazing and really harrowing and in depth and sort of the thing where you, you would read it and say, this is incredible. But it was m- making me both more interested in doing the movie and, and, and more daunted as well, in a way. And then, like, when I was editing Baby Driver, I was, uh, Sam Mendes actually introduced me to Christy Wilson Cairns, not, not in the sense of you should work with her, just that he thought we would get on. And so the first time we went out for we went for a drink in Soho and we were sitting opposite one of the few strip clubs that's left in Soho. Like I said, most of it's been gentrified out. But there's one strip club on Dean Street called Sunset Strip. And she pointed out and said, I used to live above Sunset Strip for five years when I was an aspiring screenwriter. When I worked as a barmaid at the Toucan around the corner, the Irish pub that's in the movie, which is a real pub, which is where she used to work for five years as a barmaid. So when she said that, I said, uh, I have this story I want to tell you. <laughs> and so I said, can we go out another night and go on like a Soho bar crawl? Haunts, Soho haunts. I think that's a good word, haunts. So it was actually, weirdly, it was the night of Brexit. Um, so as two people who voted to remain in Europe, we were sort of drowning our sorrows at the same time. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. uh, we went out for a night, and I told her the whole plot of the movie in this kind of basement bar called Trisha's. And I was, I think it was like using her as a sounding board, but maybe in the back of my mind or subconsciously, I sort of knew where this eventually might be going. Yes. But I just wanted to see what she thought as a screenwriter and as somebody who had lived in Soho for five years as a young woman as well. You know, she, I think she was like 21 when she was working as a barmaid. <laughs> like, so she was, loved it. And then again, like another year goes by, I think I finished Baby Drive by this point and I wanted to do this next, but I, I, I knew there was something stopping me from actually starting the screenplay. And that was when I made the call to Christy and said, do you want to write the screenplay with me? And then the great thing with it is I had the story for all that time. I had all this research 
and uh, I even had like all the pretty much all of the songs worked out. But then there's a great thing when somebody comes in at that stage is that what you bring to that is like shared experiences and completely different experiences. Her experience of London. Um, so that was it was it was amazing. It was sort of the great way to do it. It was like so when you've been sitting with something that long that somebody can come in and sort of like give you fresh angles on it or, or come up with ideas that sort of, you know, if not change the whole story, but radically change parts of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what you guys did together. It's You've had an amazing year um, with the Sparks documentary and this movie, and they're both so different from other things that you've done. What I'm curious about is, like, do you did you did were you scared <laughs> to take those big swings? Yeah, I think, you know, listen, I think sort of if, if you're not, if you're not entering into a project, um, and trying to bite off more than you can chew, it's not, a, it's, that's not a good thing. I think you've always got to sort of try and stretch yourself or, or do something that scares you. So I think there's like sort of on a, there's a number of things in this I'd never done before. So I think entering into this and maybe why it'd been percolating for a long time, because I really wanted to do it, but I was slightly scared of it, you know? So, I think it's a, you know, like hopefully, you know, everything you get to stretch yourself, like the idea of coming to work and doing something that you feel like you could do in your sleep is, is not really a, a good path. No, it makes you pay attention. I think I, I heard that, um, Sidney Pollack, when he started a movie would call like his, you know, DP or something and say, you want to get scared? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was how he judged whether he wanted to do something or not. No, I, I think it's just, you, there's got to be some element of it that you've never done before, and that's what kind of keeps it interesting. And there were so, there were so many things in this that we weren't quite sure whether we could pull them off. Like I didn't really. I think the thing is, I mean, we shot all of Soho for Soho, the modern day stuff and the and the '60s stuff as well. And you know, it's it was an ambitious idea. And I think if the if the line producer had said to me early on, "There's no way we can shoot in the real Soho." I probably wouldn't have made the movie. Like the idea of sort of faking it somewhere else was just like not interesting. Yeah, it's like not, and you know, being in a place and having that place um, surround the crew and it, it leeches into the movie. And if you were to shoot this in Atlanta, you know, I love Atlanta. <laughs> Got nothing, you know, but it's, uh, it just wouldn't be the same. I mean, it was a weird thing. There was like, there was aspects of it where I felt like I'd, um, I mean, I, I live very close to um, Soho. And in fact, I live close enough to some of the locations, one of the locations that I can see uh, Eloise's bedroom from, from, <laughs> from my balcony. And I kind of think like, oh, maybe this is a bad idea. It's that thing where like a film is, because in, in a weird way, sometimes an idea is haunting you. And the only way to kind of exercise it is to make the movie. And then I think, oh, maybe I fuck myself because I'm like living in these locations. So I like I see the locations every day. And even when we were shooting the movie, it was an amazing thing. I think for the middle like like month of it or five weeks, we were on location in Soho and I lived like (laughs) 10 minutes walk away. So they canceled my driver. They said, you don't need a driver for the middle month. No, you just walk to set. It's but so then nice. there was that very strange thing as a director when like, and also it'd always be that thing like you, we're doing night shoots in the middle of summer. So some of those, you know, then it's like an extra pressure. There's all these things that like, can we pull it off? Can we shoot London? Like, can we shoot the one area of London that's 24-7? Can we do night shoots when we have six and a half hours? And then I'd always call it when the sun would come up, I would call it Dracula O'Clock. 
It's like that's where the sun comes up and you're dead. And there'd be there'd be some scenes where like it's like I guess that's the end of the shoot because the sun came up. Yeah, that's. And then yeah. there'd be this disappointment if we didn't get the last frame, and then I'd have to be like, oh, now I got to walk home. Yeah, <laughs> like, in broad daylight. In broad daylight, cursing the sun. Yeah, going, the shame. You sun. Give us another hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. It's completely mad. Well, but I think, you know, you, you started this talk talking about nostalgia. And what I think is really interesting as like a tremendous fan of yours and, and, and the movies that you've made, the, the, the relationship with nostalgia seems to have changed over time. That, that you, you know, you come out of, a, of like a mini movement of filmmakers who are quote, quoting old films and and relishing in the past. And this movie feels like it's a little bit more skeptical of that idea. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the whole movie is about the danger of romanticizing the past and, uh, and the idea that, like, as much as I have time travel fantasies, there's nothing you can do to change the past. If you're constantly thinking about, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, there's no way of going back in time. Even the thing in this movie, because she's sort of going back in dreams and essentially, like, living somebody else's experiences, where the dream becomes a nightmare for me is the idea that if you went back but you couldn't do anything. So Martin McFly can go back to the 50s, but he can change the outcome of the 80s. But Eloise in this movie goes back and can't do anything. And that to me is where it becomes a nightmare is where she can't even avert disaster herself. There's nothing she can do to change the outcome. And even at the end, it's like sort of like there's nothing she can't, she can't save Sandy. You know, that's, 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 that's the sort of brutal truth of it. So in, in a way, like the kind of, it's, it's maybe it's me telling myself is like, you cannot change anything in the past. You can only deal with the future and moving forward. So that's sort of what it's about, essentially. And, um, and, and I think it, it, it is something where I feel like kind of, obviously people talk about, you know, people talk about the good old days in, in lots of contexts. And obviously it's a kind of fallacy to say that there's, a decade where everything was great and nothing was bad. No, yeah, it was, it was, you know, we're pretty lucky to live in this least murderous time in human history. And, and uh, I think that, what's that? <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> um, yeah, Night's so not far. over yet. <laughs> I, I don't know, I, I, you know, she's like a lens, you know, and, and she's looking at this story and she can't fix it. You know, I think it's interesting. It's also that thing. I mean, in, in, the, in the movie, I, I like because I've had these experiences myself uh, where like where there's, you know, talking to people who were there, you know, like with giddy puppy doggish enthusiasm. And, and obviously they don't see it like that. They can't be objective. There's no aerial view. And even like I think it's like I, I like I like the scenes when like, you know, kind of um, Thomas and Mackenzie is excitedly talking about the 60s to Diana Rigg, who gives her like either a flat, unromantic response or a complete non-answer. And weirdly, Diana herself, who, who would actually, if you got talking to her in depth, would tell you everything. But if she had a flat answer to people, where if somebody asked her a thing of like, oh, what was it? Because obviously, Rita Tushingham, Terence Stamper, all, and Diana Rigg are all 60s icons, but I don't think they necessarily think of themselves like that. I know they don't. In fact, Rita said this in an interview the other day. She said, it's very strange to think of yourself as an icon. And Diana Rigg would have a line that she'd brush people off with if she didn't want to talk about it. If somebody asked her about the 60s, she goes, I don't remember the 60s, darling. I was too busy making the Avengers. <laughs> but that was her kind of like non-answer as like the brush off. Well, because you're like in it, you know? Yeah. And like history is like an act of imagination in a lot of ways. 
so it's so you know we projected onto them and we add a narrative onto them but I'm not sure I, I, I feel I had that experience with my parents as well that I, like, my parents were obviously around in the 60s but in that way that I was kind of giddily interested in 60s culture but all of my attempts to draw them on it kind of met with dead ends. Right. <laughs> so, like, my parents would have this thing where my, my mum and dad would have a, a, an argument about my dad would say, oh, and we, we saw Jimi Hendrix live. And mum said, we didn't see Jimi Hendrix. We saw Pink Floyd. And I said, you saw Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett? They're so what? similar. I can see how they would mix them up. But then I say, oh, you saw Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett? What was it like? She goes, oh, it was awful. <laughs> end of conversation. Oh, they lived through it. They didn't get it. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Um, well, uh, uh, I think that's our time. Uh, I, I um, thank you guys for sticking around for this. Um, and Edgar, thank you for making a, a movie that uh, haunted me all day today. I saw it last night. And um, it's really, a, uh, you're um, a maestro. And I really felt like it was a virtuoso. Your, your movies always feel performed to me, like a piece of music. So congratulations. Let's congratulate Edgar on this beautiful movie. Thank you. Thanks for coming out, guys. Lovely to see you in a theater. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.